It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 141, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Brendan Davison grows microgreens in over 4,000 square feet of greenhouse space at Goodwater Farms in Bridgehampton, New York. Started in 2011 in the driveway of Brendan's house, Goodwater Farms sells its greens to Whole Foods markets and a long list of Hamptons and New York City restaurants. Brendan shares his spiritual and practical path to building Goodwater Farms, and we dig into many of the details of what makes Goodwater Farms a successful microgreens operation, including Brendan's marketing approach and how he manages production throughout the year. And we take a deep dive into how Goodwater Farms' implementation of a HACCP plan for food safety increased the operation's efficiency and improved employee competence and confidence. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact them at localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com And before we get started today, we're going to get a quick word from Dave Chapman about an issue that's very important to organic farmers. This is Dave Chapman from Longwind Farm in East Thetford, Vermont. The, this November in Jacksonville, Florida, the NOSB is voting on a proposal to prohibit hydroponic production from organic. This is a very important proposal, so I hope that everybody who's listening will at least uh, go to keepthesoilinorganic.org and sign a petition and submit testimony, written testimony, to the uh, NOSB. Even better. Come to Jacksonville and join the farmer rally that's going to be there. We've got probably 50 people who we're expecting to be at that rally to let the USDA know how we feel. We want to keep organic farming based on the soil. Brendan Davison, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, Brendan, I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Goodwater Farms, where you guys are located, what you're doing, and, and how much of it you're doing out there. Okay, so we're located in Bridgehampton, New York, which is on the east end of Long Island. Some of you probably out there have heard of the Hamptons. We, year-round folks, call it the east end, not the Hamptons. The Hamptons only last for about three months out of the summer, clarifying that. Um, so we're on a 32-acre uh, farm uh, in the middle of Bridgehampton. Uh, we grow in a 4,000-square-foot greenhouse currently. Um, and we are growing certified organic microgreens, and we are about to, probably another month away, become the first biodynamic uh, microgreen company. Wow, with the with the Demeter certification. Exactly. Yes. Very cool. And how many square feet of microgreens production do you have? Is that is that all under all in greenhouses? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, we have a 4,000-square-foot greenhouse. is pretty much all covered with flood tables, which we grow on. And we do have a loft space in our barn 
for in the winter time for uh, winter production of a lot of the basil, cilantro, because they don't really like the cold, cold nights when the temperatures get down into the teens out here. So we bring them in, and they're under T5 fluorescence uh, just for about six months out of the year. How long has Goodwater Farms been around? So I started the company in get to the point in 2011 that you started growing microgreens in a greenhouse in your driveway? My experience was uh, I lived in Los Angeles from uh, 99 to 2006, and I grew uh, cannabis. In I had a, a grow houses all over Los Angeles that I grew in. So that's how I learned how to grow indoors. And, what I, and how I know so much about hydroponics, because the first year that I grew, I grew hydroponically and I couldn't sleep at night. I just, I had a, you know, one of my closest friends was, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And here I am, you know, she, she wanted, you know, to, uh, you know, to make, to make brownies that she could eat for chemo because it, it helped. And the minute I saw that, I was like, wait, chemo growing in, in, you know, chemical fertilizers, what am I doing? This is not right. And that's when I made the switch to soil and, and people in the grow community, uh, which was at that time, uh, you know, this was during the Bush administration, uh, it was we were seen as terrorists, we were seen as outlaws. It was it was, you know, it's not the way it is now, um, how open it is and uh, and accepted. It has become so. You know, the people in my community were like, "You're going to grow in soil? Oh my God, the diseases you're going to have, this and that." And and of course, when I started doing it and mixing soils, and I, at that time I was creating my own soils, just you know, for connoisseurs, the flavors that were coming out, people were freaking out. And and of course, I could sleep at night because I knew it was grown, uh, you know, naturally in soil and. And, uh, so yeah, these, these are the little things that, and then from there, once I got out of that world, uh, I was kind of in this lost place and not knowing what to do. And I started, uh, studying shamanism. I actually went to a school called the Four Winds to study the, the energy medicine of the Karos Indians in the, in the Andes of Inca descent. And I started going up there and doing, going into San Pedro ceremony. I started going into the jungles with the Shakibo and doing ayahuasca ceremony. And from all of that, I realized, you know, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to become a, an energy medicine practitioner. And that's how I can help people. 
because even further back, even before I started growing cannabis, I was a roadie for Krishnadas. Now he's a Grammy award-winning Kirtan Walla, an American guy. And I was in India with him uh, and trying to become enlightened. And I was asking him, well, how do I become enlightened? How do I become enlightened? And uh, this is when I was like 26. And he said, let me tell you a story about when we were with our guru in 1969. And we had this woman with us who was uh, a little annoying. Uh, She kept on for three months asking the same exact question to the guru. How do I become enlightened? How do I become enlightened? And every time she asked that question, he would kick us all out. So we kind of had this little bit of animosity towards her. And it was getting to the end. It was the last day she was going back to the the States. And, of course, she asked, how do I become enlightened? And he just kind of was silent. He didn't kick us out, which was a sign. And then she was like, well, i got to go. And she was getting up. And as she was leaving, he looks up. And then he just basically said, the way to enlightenment is to feed people and serve people. And I was like, what? And he was like, that's exactly how she was. She was so uh, deflated because she thought that she was going to get, like, the handbook, like, given to her, like, from the gods. Like, this is how, this is the the way to do it. And, you know, that simple notion of feed people, serve people. So I carried that through, that story in my mind. And when creating all this, and then, in South America, trying to figure out what my next my next thing was, and in in those kind of feeling dates of being an ayahuasca, I realized why I was sent here was to grow, grow stuff. That was why I'm here. I was play. That's my. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's when, of course, when I moved back to out here on the East End, trying to find that next thing to do, I was going to be an energy medicine practitioner, and I decided. And I started doing it. I started seeing clients and it was one-on-one. And I just was like, God, I, you know, this is, this is great for them, but I'm not being fulfilled because I, I want to reach more. How can I reach more people? How can, how can I help in the process of people healing themselves? Uh, and then food, going back, you know, feed people, serve people. Food is, is, is one of the most healing things that a person can do to come into balance in themselves is to eat right and to eat healthy so and that's kind of how the microgreens came in because of course here i am the uh cannabis grower in california getting you know three thousand dollars a pound and then looking around at the farmers getting two dollars a pound for something (laughs) i'm like my ego couldn't handle that i'm like yeah no way (laughs) and of course microgreens thirty dollars a pound whoa that's that's actually that's that's up my alley and then also realizing the way that I learned to grow, which is like the sea of green. It's a constantly, it's, it's constant. There's never any downtime. It's always on. It's going. It's constantly moving. And growing in the ground and fields, the process doesn't fit me as who I am. I like, you know, I like things constantly changing, constantly moving. The, the flow that, you know, and so microgreens was just, it was the perfect fit, you know, for, for, for me for the way that I approach growing. So, yeah, I mean, there's many more stories, but that's kind of just it all goes back to that question that we all ask at some point in our lives. Why am I here? I got to that point when I, I walked out of, uh, I walked onto a plane to Quitos in the jungles of Peru. I was walking onto the plane and I was like, I'm going to, I got to start growing again. But of course, 
I'm not, not going to go down. At that point, I had a daughter, a three-year-old daughter. And I, I just, that world, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of heaviness that comes in with that world that I came from. And I didn't, that wasn't the environment that I wanted to raise my daughter in. So that's where that moment in New York City with the, with the microgreens. At first I was, because when I was in living in California it, at the time that I was growing, uh, was the same time that the raw food movement was happening. Uh, you know, the farmer's market was where I learned about organic for the first time. Uh, the vegetarianism, the uh, Ayurvedic ways of eating, like there was like this concentration in Santa Monica of of all these different ways of, of food, of eating, and different uh, diets that I was exposed to. And in being exposed to that, I learned how to, uh, somebody was like, you know, if you want to have like an incredible protein, it's almost a complete protein into your diet, grow sunflower seeds. So that's how at first I started doing that. And my daughter was born and that's pretty much, I was, she was eating them daily because I was growing them in the kitchen of one of the houses that I was growing them. So I, that's when I came back, when I got onto that plane realizing that I need to grow again. I bought that little greenhouse and I started just growing sunflower and I was just growing it for friends. And then that's when that chance encounter when I went into the city and had dinner with friends at a restaurant that I, that microgreens were kind of shown to me. And then that's kind of, it was all timing, you know, really. And it's, you know, it's, I guess in all of the, the teachings and the, and the healings and everything that I was going through, just, it just kind of, I came into balance with myself and, uh, me for who I truly am and where I truly need to go and how I can help and how I can be of service. Uh, yes, it's just all perfect, you know, and all timing and allowing myself to open that up to have those, uh, that timing kind of come in. And it ties everything in to the way that I do things, the way that I approach all of this. And it's, to me, it's a practice. It's, you know, it's my practice. I think if farmers, growers, uh, whatever it is, uh, cattle ranchers start kind of just understanding that everything is connected and everything is one. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but it's true. And I think if any, if everybody can start approaching growing and farming in that way, I think we can change a lot of the imbalanced systems that are in place right now. And how did you get from there to where you are now? Uh, <laughs> a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and a hell of a lot of money. That's it in the overall. Um, so from there, it's been a long, stressful journey of uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Basically, from the first place in Amagansett, which is the 7 by 11 greenhouse, I just started growing sunflower shoots at first. And then I was in Manhattan in a restaurant with uh, some friends and I saw these little tiny greens on top of the dishes that kept on coming out. And so I asked the waitress and I said, what, is, what are these? And she's like, um, garnishes? And I'm like, oh, I don't look like a garnish. This is something else. And she's like, well, let me get the chef. And the chef comes out 
And uh, he goes, oh, those are microgreens. I'm, I'm, you're like the first person that's ever noticed them. I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, well, what are they? And he's like, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they're just mini uh, vegetables. And I'm like, okay. And so from there, I came back out, and I just started. This was like in the spring 2012, and I just started doing research with microgreens, and I found a couple companies, uh, and I called them, but they didn't want to talk to me. So I called the seed company, Johnny's, who I was buying the uh, sunflower seeds from to grow, and I asked them about that. The woman on the other end said, well, funny you should ask. We're actually launching a whole division, microgreens division. Could we send you samples to try out? And I said, yeah, of course. So they sent me some samples, and in no time I was you know, growing like 16 different varieties. And then from there, I, you know, probably 15 years earlier, I used to work in a lot of the restaurants out here. Uh, that was a, a lifetime ago. But a lot of the same people had opened that worked in the restaurant that I worked at were working in other restaurants. So I kind of started going around and just dropping trays off and and by midsummer I outgrown the little greenhouse and started looking for a bigger space. So did you scale up to something that was between your driveway and where you are now? Yeah. So mind you, I, I had no idea really no idea what I was doing and nobody was really kind of helping. So I had to try to I had to kind of create something. And I also didn't get a lot of support from the local farming community out here. They kind of, uh, they looked at me as a gimmick, as not a real farmer, and they kind of snubbed their nose at me. So I was on my own. So basically, uh, I just took from my experience that I had of growing, and then I started calling myself a grower, not a farmer, because I wanted to, I, I kind of had a bad taste in my mouth, and I wanted to separate myself from the farmers. Uh, I know this is a farmer to farmer podcast, but uh, that's kind of how it happened. And so I found a warehouse space in East Hampton, New York, and I started. Uh, the space was a 2,000 square foot, 30 foot ceiling space, and I kind of created tables, kind of like I have now, but less. Uh, professional and used grow lights and started doing that and then I cleared out the side of the warehouse which I had the end of the warehouse and I put up a 20 by 40 greenhouse but this was in the woods so I had little light so I was kind of I was stumbling for the next few years growing product but it was it was working it just wasn't efficient and uh and, and I wasn't maximizing uh, what I my potential, I guess. So, how long did you spend kind of muddling along in that twenty by forty house until you moved into your current setup? Solid three years, four years, four years. And now, I mean, the setup that you've got now, just from the pictures that I've seen, is a. I mean, it's a pretty sharp looking setup. You've got. Um, it looks to me like polycarbonate greenhouses with peak vents and and heaters and the whole nine yards. Can you tell us a little bit more about the infrastructure that you're working with there? Yeah, so we uh, worked with a company, Nexus Greenhouse, um, out of Colorado, and they were great. They just kind of helped me create the environment that I wanted. I mean, that's kind of what an indoor 
grower does is, you know, we create an environment. And so myself and the team there, we basically came up with the best greenhouse to use with the high gable, roof vents, side vents. Uh, and then inside, uh, we have on the east end of the uh, greenhouse, we have that runs the length of uh, the 100 feet is our germination boxes, which we call the womb, basically. So the germination boxes are what, after we feed the flats, we put them into the germination box where it's warm and moist, and it stays in there. It depends on the variety, anywhere from three days to seven days. And that's just similar to a standard germination chamber. You've got some heat in there and some humidity that you're generating, and and you're just waiting for those seeds to pop in that environment. Exactly, exactly. And it's funny because now, a little over a year later, I figured out a whole different system to do. <laughs> so for our second <laughs> greenhouse, it'll be all be different. It's like that, that, that's the, you know, when there's not a instructional uh, video of how to build a microgreen business, you kind of just have to figure it out. And then, of course, you know, you, you kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again until you figure out that, oh my God, why, why am I doing that? And then, you know, you shift your perspective two millimeters and all of a sudden everything opens up and you're like, oh, oh, the way I'm doing it is not really that efficient. Let me try this. And then you do that and then, you know, hopefully not in another year, I'll be like, okay, we have to do it a different way now. So it's a constant retooling and redefining our production facility. I remember when we were first on my farm working out some of the details of winter production, you know, this would have been in, in the late 1990s. And I was talking with Elliot Coleman and I was, I was bemoaning this exact process. You know, it's like, okay, well, how do we get this done? And as soon as we figure out this, then we've got another problem and we're trying to correct that. And I can't believe you don't have a solution for this, Elliot. And he finally says, Chris, 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 he says, this is the perilous path of the pioneers. I'm like, oh man, that sucks. Cause that's hard. You know, it's hard. <laughs> I know there's days when I'm just like, could somebody please just come and tell me what to do? And it's just, it's just, you know, and of course you just figure it out. Right. I mean, it seems to me that there, I mean, there's people doing microgreens out there and there's people in various parts of the country who are, who are being successful with it. You know, I'm thinking of people that we've had on the show, Mike Bollinger and Greg Garbos, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but I also feel like everybody's got their own unique approach to how they're getting the job done too. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like there's, there's one system of doing it at this point. Yeah. And of course I've chosen the most, I think, challenging and and difficult path, which is using soil. You know, I think most of the companies that I know are pretty much hydroponic and uh, I just couldn't sleep at night if I was growing in that way. Why? Uh, I believe hydroponics is conventional farming. Uh, the use of chemicals to grow food just doesn't make sense. And then on a simpler, uh, more, maybe an esoteric or kind of more grounded way of looking at it, the way I see it is, you know, us here as humans on the earth, we deal with the five elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and sometimes, and ether. Uh, so when you 
remove one of those, it causes in, an imbalance. So when you're removing the most foundational one, which is earth, soil, you are creating and you're growing in an imbalanced way. That's why they have to use tons of pH down or pH up. They have to use tons of bleach to clean. And they're, you know, they're using pretty much chemical fertilizer to feed those. So to me, that's an imbalanced system. And I'm not going to put that into my body. So I've gone in a more natural approach and a more balanced approach of growing in soil. And so when you say growing in soil, you're obviously not like seeding the microgreens in the ground. You're, you're seeding these in, in trays. What are you using for soil? So we're using a, you know, it's more of a potted mix. You know, it's, it's, it's an organic mix. And now we're into, you know, injecting uh, the biodynamic principles into the soil as well. Is this an off-the-shelf soil that you're buying or is this something that you're blending on your own? Um, both. I'm using the base from an off the shelf, and then I add to that when it when it gets here. What are you looking for in a soil? Then I mean, and I and I understand that that some of this is proprietary. You know, we're not wanting to get into the exact components of the mix, but like, what are you after? What are you trying to build as a substrate for growing your plants? I guess I'm. I'm I'm really, well, again, it depends on the variety that I'm growing, but I'm trying to create a foundation with a lot of uh, aeration, a lot of water retention, and yeah, just trying to create that foundation for whether it's a vegetable or an herb that I'm growing that can flourish. And And based on the comments that you made about hydroponics, I assume that you're using a compost-based soil mix to grow your plants in, something that's got the fertility kind of baked in already. Yes, yes, you are correct. You know, I mean, talking about these these different ways of producing microgreens, and I'm, I'm on a microgreens list and I, on Facebook, and I'm always surprised because the growers that I've known have always done it in the soil, and of course, that's that's always been my default setting as well, to do things in the soil, or at least in living soil mixes. And and so I've seen a lot of comments about the hydroponic stuff. So I, I'm curious how you market your product. I mean, because obviously if you're choosing to grow in the soil, you're creating something that's differentiated from other microgreens in the marketplace. So where and how are you selling your microgreens? It's probably about 60-40. 60% we have a line of retail packs for Whole Foods, and the other 40 is to restaurants. Um for restaurants, we uh, deliver living in the soil, so a living tray to the chef. But as we are scaling up, we are going to be cutting as well soon. And then for Whole Foods, we cut and package for them. And soon, going in, in another direction, direct-to-consumer, where we are delivering, it's out here locally now, just delivering uh, four different variety living greens, like a half tray in a box that's delivered to your doorstep. And then it's kind of like you're cutting it as you need, similar to the way we're doing it with the chef. I'm really interested in the in the retail marketplace that you're talking about. That's where I did most of my marketing. And, and we have a lot of people that ask about, about breaking into that retail marketplace. And microgreens don't exactly strike me as being a 
consumer-friendly product. I think most of us tend to encounter microgreens in the way that you talked about them at first, be you know, in a restaurant as kind of a garnish on top of some other stuff. And so trying to convince mm-hmm. somebody to buy four or six ounces of microgreens seems like a little bit of an uphill battle. It is. It is. And it was because as we speak right now, people still don't really know about microgreens. So in 2012, I did uh, an interview with uh, NPR, The Salt, and the interview was about the University of Maryland at College Park did a study uh, for the Department of Agriculture and Food Chemistry. And in that study, they found that microgreens were 4 to 40 times more nutrient-packed than their mature leaf counterparts. This is something when I first started playing around and, and starting Good Water Farms that I, I knew. And like, it was like, you know, when you're farming or you're doing whatever, you, you know something, but you know that it's going to, for people to believe you, it's going to require, uh, you know, a scientific study to be done. But in your heart and in your soul, you know that this is, this is it. So that's kind of that feeling that I had. And then in 2012, this kind of justified my feelings. And from that, four to 40 times more nutrient pack, that's when I started to go away, not away, but I redirected the shift, so to speak, uh, towards retail consumer. And then I, in doing that, of course, Whole Foods is kind of the New York Yankees, so to speak, of supermarkets, you know, uh, uh, certified organic, so forth and so on. And everybody I spoke to said, don't work with that company, they're going to Feel your soul, blah, 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 blah. And of course, I just was like, no, I'm going to go forward with them because they are the place where my product is going to grow, so to speak. In working with Whole Foods in, in the retail sector, that's where kind of everything opened up for me and I saw the path that I was going to go down very clearly. And so when I met with Whole Foods, I sat down with them for the first time and we spoke, knowing that I had in the in the back, in my back pocket, so to speak, the study of four to 40 times more nutrient packs. We were talking and they were saying, oh, they're too expensive. People aren't going to buy them. And I said, I'm like, that's funny. You know, you're, you guys are whole paycheck. Like, I don't understand that. And then, and I said, it's not, it's not so much about, let's not talk about price right now. Let's just talk about what microgreens are. And they said, okay. And my, the first thing that came out of my mouth to them was, I said, well, my product and the way that I grow in, in living soil and the nutrient content of four to 40 times of the mature leaf counterparts, I basically see our microgreens as the most nutritional thing that you will have in your store, bar none. And the, they all kind of looked at me like I was insane. And then I looked back at them, by even looking more insane, and I said, tell me something that's that, that is not processed in a laboratory, like a vitamin, tell me something that has more a higher nutrient content. And they couldn't. And I said, well, wouldn't you want that for your customer? This incredible green that is four to 40 times more nutrient packed? And they were like, yeah. And they said, okay, give us eight varieties and we'll start in, we'll start next week. And I was like, whoa, you got to give me a little bit more time than that. <laughs> I have to create a package. I have to create a label. I have to create a lot of stuff to get to that point. And 
And we did it pretty quick, but we did it. And that's been kind of the direction that I'm going in more and more, especially with our cookbook that's out now. People are starting to understand how important microgreens are. And, and things that I say to people when they ask me about microgreens, I say, well, microgreens are the foundation of the new human diet going forward into the future. And they look at me and I'm like, you can eat them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and for a snack. And you're going to get all your nutrients, all your phytonutrients, proteins, everything you need for your daily activities, whether it's running, surfing, climbing, biking, or working. If you incorporate them into your life, into your diet, they are pretty much the gateway to health. And that's kind of where I've gone now. Now it's pretty, pretty easy to get into the places that I need to get into. And now more and more like us doing this podcast or the way that microgreens are becoming more and more accepted and known. It's just, I think it's, and there's a lot, believe me, there's a lot more work that we have to do on education, but in getting the, you know, in marketing and getting the word out. And that's pretty much where we're at right now. When you went to Whole Foods, especially with a product like microgreens, which are so, I think of as being so close to being sprouts. And I, I realize that they're different than sprouts. Absolutely different. Absolutely different. But, but being, well, actually, so, so I said, I, I realize that they're different than sprouts, but maybe, <laughs> okay. So that, again, this is sort of that one of those gut level things. So why don't you tell me how microgreens are different than sprouts? Okay. So sprouts are pretty much the first growth of the seed, the taproot and the catalytin, and they're grown in water. So when I had the USDA uh, or certification process through uh, NOFA come down uh, here to inspect us, the first thing they said to me was, okay, you are, you're only, you're, you're a microgreen company. I said, yes. And they're like, you don't grow sprouts. And I said, no. And they go, perfect. And I said, well, what's the difference? And they're like, well, microgreens are, you know, if they're doing it the right way, grown in soil. So the taproot is going into the soil and it's growing. And then the first two leaves of the vegetable herb grow. A sprout is the stage before that. So you don't need to put it into any kind of medium. So once those two leaves come, then it becomes a microgreen. And I know that sprouts and microgreens are regulated differently from a food safety standpoint, but how did you get over that food safety hurdle with Whole Foods, especially, you know, as a, as a smaller, scrappier operation? Well, we had to create a hashtag plan um, and we had to hire a person to come in and create that plan with us. And that agent who came in kept lumping us into sprouts and I, and I kept, and there was a battle a good day until he finally realized, oh yeah, you are not a sprout. And and he said to me, he goes, and he and when it came to finally realizing, he said, you know what? The reason why sprouts have such a um, bad health record, so to speak, is because they're grown in water. And water is the carrier of disease, not soil. It's water. So anytime you see, you know, uh, one of the farms out west or wherever the salmonella or, or you know, in, in, in spinach. And it's like, what? And it's, it's just a runoff from the big factory farms or it could be, you know, the, the migrant workers, you know, defecating in the fields. 
and the water is the carrier that causes disease, not soil. So that's when, of course, thank goodness, our HACCP agent realized that. And then we all got on the phone with Whole Foods and made that distinction as well, and they agreed, okay, there is a difference. So that's kind of how it, it's not, I mean, it wasn't easy, but we finally got to that point of that differentiation. And when you talk about hiring a HACCP agent, this was a consultant. This isn't somebody from the government coming in and telling you how to do things. This is somebody from private industry coming in and, and essentially creating a food safety plan for your farm. Yeah, which is a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and but I think that's kind of where the other thing is where we, I think going back to the question you asked a couple how do we market and how do we differentiate being certified organic, being now almost certified when transition biodynamics, having a HACCP plan. What we're saying to the public is we're transparent. Look, come and look at us. We have three different um, people coming in random time to check on how we are growing and making sure that we are growing the way that we say we're growing. Um, and I think that's really important. Yes, it's it's a cost, but I mean, don't you want to be transparent to show the public of how you're growing? And I think that's something where I see it as yes, it's a big expense, but down the road, you know, that transparency is going to pay off because the way that the conscious consumer now in the United States is educating themselves more and more, they're going to want to know, okay, where, not only where does my food come from, who is growing my food? And why are they growing it the way they're growing it? And who are they? And those are things that I see as a marketing tool for anybody, whether you're a microgreen farmer, a mushroom farmer, a flower producer, or whatever it is. Transparency, I feel, going forward into the future is the key uh, marketing element. And not, not just marketing, just as the soul of, of a farm on that end, so to speak. Going through that HACCP verification, what kinds of changes did you have to make to meet those HACCP requirements? Create a lot of paperwork. <laughs> um, not so much had to change, it's more documenting, documentation, not really changing the way we're, we're our production. It's just documenting every step, which at first, and we're, we're still going through it, is it's a pain in the ass. You know, okay, we have to teach everybody to wash their hands the right way. But then every time everybody washes their hands from one room to the next, you have to document it. You have to, and it's just, it, it's tedious. It's, and it's like, your mind starts to melt of the amount of like, oh my God. But as our agent always says, he's like, it's always toughest in the beginning. After a couple of years, it just becomes second nature because you have to train yourself and your employees. This is the way we're doing things. So it's not so much the production aspect of growing. It's more of all that surrounding and supporting that growing. Does that make sense? That does. It's really kind of systematizing the things that you're already doing and, and making them into formal documented processes rather than just saying, hey, wash your hands. Exactly. And 
to be honest with you, what I'm noticing is we're becoming more efficient, which that's something that I've been striving for from, since I started this thing is efficiency. I'll become more efficient. And, you know, going through this hatch app and creating these plans, as, you know, first it's like, oh, God, I can't believe we have to do this. This is ridiculous. Now, as we're like halfway into it, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. We're actually producing faster. And we're being, we're, the process is speeding up a little bit, so to speak. We're becoming more efficient. We're, we're kind of coming into uh, like a well-oiled machine in a way. We're kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know if you watch basketball, but we're kind of becoming the Golden State Warriors in a way. <laughs> like the way that, the, you know, everybody's working as a team. It's, it's, it's about the team. It's not about one individual person. And my amazement is created more efficiency. You know, when, when everybody thinks about paperwork, they, they say, oh, it's going to, you know, it takes so much time to fill out the paperwork and it takes so much time to train people to fill out the paperwork. And, and, but, but you're saying that, that this process of, of documenting and, and then doing the paperwork as you go is actually helping to make you guys more efficient. Can you get it? How? Like, do you, what, what's the, do you know what the mechanism is there? Or can you give us an example? Well, I think starting out when it's like, I mean, that's what I hear with everybody that's not certified organic. It's, oh, it's too much paperwork. It's too much money. I don't have time for that. And it's like, mm, no, you do have a lot of time for that. And it is very important. I think it's training the mind where I'm noticing it. It's training your employees that there's a system. It's kind of like what it's creating is sharpness, meaning, um, okay, now that you know that you have to, you have to take the gloves off or leave certain things in this room because you can't bring into the other room. At first, it seems like it's, it's taking more time to get to do something. But in the mind of the, your coworkers, in the mind of yourself, you're realizing that it's creating more space for the philosophies the way you grow. It's, it's creating more of a... Also, too, it's like now you know that those scissors are in that room and they'll always be in that room. Or that sometimes the, work, the guys will take the scissors out you put them in your back pocket and then you put them down somewhere and then you go back in and you're like, oh my God, where are my scissors? And then where did I put them? Hey, did you see my scissors? Hey, do you have my scissors? Where did my scissors go? But if you know that those scissors can't leave that room and you put them down, you know you're not going to lose your scissors. You know they're there. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. To me, it sounds a lot like what some of our guests have talked about with the lean farming, you know, that like the Ben Hartman talks about and kind of a, a, applying those, some of those manufacturing principles to, to farming. Like you say, when everything has a place, all of a sudden, now you, you really do free up energy to, to think about the bigger picture, to, to, a, to, to really solve the problems that you should be solving instead of having to solve the problem of where the hell are my scissors? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> for getting out of my head. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. It, it's true. It, it, it happens all the time, you know, bring stuff out of the greenhouse and then you're like, oh my God, I forgot this. And you have to go all the way back to the other. And, and it's not like you're, you're, you're walking miles. You're maybe walking, you know, in, in essence, 20 feet. But if you multiply what it takes time-wise that to walk that 20, well, 40 feet, 20 feet there, 20 feet back, you realize that that adds up a lot. Well, and I, I don't know about you, but the other thing that always added up for me when things weren't where they were supposed to be. And a lot of times it was me who hadn't put them there, but 
was was it the the cussing and the swearing and the frustration also takes a certain amount of time and energy. It's not just the walking, but it's the it's the mental energy that goes into well, my sister my scissors aren't where they should be. Where are they? Why aren't they there? And and damn it, this is frustrating. Yeah, and then then take that a little bit further and realize that you are a food producer and you're putting that frustration and that energy into the food that you're packaging or or growing. And I think that's something that draws in a different direction. I think that's something that people are going to start understanding more and more, even with green, um, with vegetable production, is, you know, who's growing your food energetically. And that's why, you know, going through this half-shot plan, it, it, it creates space like what you said, it, it, it creates space in the mind. It creates space in in everybody that's working. That's like, you know, it, it creates a flow that, you know, just, yes, there's constantly, you know, wrenches being thrown into the machine to slow things down. But everybody's kind of, once you're, once you're flowing, creating that flow, it really allows you to, to open up energetically as well. And that just creates a, an amazing product, whatever it is we're making. I couldn't agree more. Having been on both sides of that energetic flow uh, before. So, um, now you're talking about about a HACCP verification. Now, usually when I talk to producers about food safety, they're talking about about gaps or gips, the you know the good agricultural practices, the good handling practices, and going through audits for that. What's the difference between going through the GAPS process and going through the HACCP process? The goal is the same. The overall, the end of it is the same. It's just a different, they're just looking for different things. Um, you know, the HACCP is just looking to make sure that all of the paperwork is there, that you have, that you're doing it. Uh, GAPS, meaning, you know, that's more the, you know, good agricultural practices. They're just wanting to make sure you're not slipping in, you know, uh, miracle grow, <laughs> you know, like um, stuff like that. So it, it's similar, it's same thing, but different. And when you talk about transparency, and, and this is where I always think it's interesting when you're going through a retail marketplace, right? It's one thing to go to a chef and say, you know, hey, I'm Brendan Davison. I'm from Goodwater Farms, and I'm really cool, and I've got these certifications, and this is what they mean, and and see my passion and taste my food. It's another thing to sell something to a produce buyer at a grocery store and say, I'm Brendan Davison from Goodwater Farms. I'm really cool. You know, see my product, taste my food. But then they have to take that that next step and go to the consumer or somehow it has to get relayed to that final, to that retail buyer that you are cool, that you are transparent, that this is what all that transparency means. And this is why they should buy those microgreens. How have you made, how have you bridged that gap? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still bridging it. Um, here's how I kind of see it. And I'm, I'm going to kind of go in a kind of another direction, but in the United States, the American public with food, it's all about the way it looks in Europe. It's all about the way it tastes. So working with chefs here, American chefs especially, because that's how they've been indoctrinated into the food system, is it has to look perfect. So chefs from Europe, it has to taste amazing. And the way it tastes amazing is so 
don't use a lot of stuff. Keep it very simple. So that's kind of my mentality is in growing uh, microgreens. It's all about flavor. And that's why I grow in soil. It's all about the flavor. And it's difficult sometimes because now switching to the retail market, you know, I'll see some of the microgreens that we're cutting and it doesn't look perfect. Maybe it's a shade, a little bit yellow, but it's not bad. But I know in my mind, I'm like, we have to stay perfect. We have to stay perfect because that's how the American consumer looks at their food. It has to look perfect. That's why it's always, everything's packaged. That's why packaging is so important in retail. Doesn't, they don't care if it tastes like tasteless or tastes like crap. Selling to the retail markets and knowing that it has to look good, I think that's where, and I said it before, that's a good question. I'm trying to bridge those to those philosophies, the way of Europe and the way of the United States. And what I'm trying to do is, you know, in a sense, which is going to probably take a, a very long time, is kind of change the American palate, meaning microgreens, the flavors of microgreens are so much stronger than their mature leaf counterparts, uh, more intense flavors. So people that come the farm here and they'll you know chefs and stuff they'll walk down they'll cut off a piece of cucumber microgreens and they're like oh my god this tastes like the most amazing cucumber i've ever had in my life i'm like exactly or they'll grab some genovese basil and oh my god this is the flavor and i'm like exactly so i think that's where working with restaurants and retail you have to make it look good because that's how that's why people buy it it has to look good in the american book but also, once they get it home and they open up that package and they taste it, that's where I get them. That's where, you know, wait a minute. Not only is it good for me, it tastes really, really good. And that's just, it's gonna, it's a slow process, but, you know, I, I don't plan on going anywhere. And as I said earlier, I feel that microgreens are the foundation of the new diet. So going forward, it's just going to take time for that bridge to be completed. Do the chefs that you're talking to generally know what it is that you're talking about? Do they go, oh, yeah, microgreens? Yeah. This is something that uh, if I could always go back in time and change what comes out of my mouth, <laughs> <laughs> is that, that statement of I only work with uh, chefs, which at that time, yes, but uh, being that idealistic, uh, naive, uh, young man, uh, well, you know, a couple of years ago, um, that was my way of thinking. It was like, okay, I'm only going to work with the chefs that really know what this is. But then you have to, of course, being a grower, a farmer, you also have to put on the business cap sometimes and realize, oh my God, I'm shooting myself in the foot here. I'm alienating the majority <laughs> and only dealing with the minority. Yeah, I kind of changed that tune a little bit. Um, now, you know, working with chefs, true chefs that know what they're getting, it's easy because it's just, it's just, um, it's a collaborative. They know and they know I know. So we work together to create something. The ones that are using it as a garnish, you know, that, that may be at first what they're using it for, but over time, and then of course, you know, here's, you know, the loudmouth New Yorker always in their ear going, oh, I think you should try this on this dish. 
oh, you'll get a better, <laughs> you better get a better flavor with this. There's no reason for you to be putting all those dried herbs on there. How about you add this as the, you know, and over time, all of a sudden, what happens? It switches. And then they're like, what, what else you got? I mean, you know, uh, as we're on the phone, I'm getting text messages from Chef right now. Hey, I'm, I'm doing this special. How would this, what, what do you think would work well with this dish? And so, of course, it's just like, it's just, it's a process, like everything. And it just takes time. And sometimes you just have to get out of your own way and your own belief system sometimes in the way that it should be or the way that you want it to be. And as soon as you could do that, things open up. With that, we're going to stop here, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Brendan Davison from Goodwater Farms in Bridgehampton, New York. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest, packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Check out their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from pack house to your customer's doorstep. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In addition to being excellent physical products that grow amazing transplants year after year, Vermont Compost Potting Soils are really an embodiment of the best of the art and science of potting soil. Seriously, would you rather eat bread or drink beer rooted in a place and made with a deep tradition and respect? Or would you rather eat bread and drink beer that's the product of the most reductionist of modern science, which gave us sliced white bread in plastic bags and the most unpalatable military industrial beer? And would you rather use potting soils based on reductionist science that require the daily infusion of liquid fertilizers? Or would you prefer to use potting soils based on living compost and the best ingredients designed to bring the rich diversity of biology into your greenhouse planting trays and soil blocks? I know what I prefer, and that's why I would encourage you to take advantage of Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program to help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost fall pre-buy program runs through December 21st, vermontcompost.com. All right, and we're back with Brendan Davison from Goodwater Farms in Bridgehampton, New York. So, Brendan, we talked about soil in the first half of our conversation and, and how you're buying in soil and, and then you're adding other ingredients to the compost-based soil mix that you're purchasing. And it sounds like you're doing different soils for different crops. Is that right? Yes and no. Since we grow 32 different varieties of microgreens, we don't change it for each one individually. We kind of group it into... You know, brassicas, it, it, it depends. And it depends on, we try to get the ones that are kind of all growing at the same rate. So that's kind of how we do that. I guess just to walk through the process, then the, the first thing that I think you would do with microgreens is you've got to fill some trays with soil. Um, what kind of trays are you using and, and how are you getting the soil mix into those? 
So we're using just 10 by 20 flats. Um, and currently right now, and the way we've done it since the beginning, when I started by myself, it's all, everything's done by hand, you know, scooping the soil into the trays, um, seeding, everything is done by hand. But as we're scaling up and we're about to make this next jump, so to speak, in production, I'm starting to look at the technologies out there, like hoppers, automatic machines that, that put the soil into the trays. So we're kind of in that place right now. We're in that next growth period where I'm looking for technology to kind of assist us in the growing. But for right now, you're just hand scooping the soil into there and then I assume leveling that off. Um, yeah. Do you feel that this was always a, a discussion that we had when we did and we did a little bit of microgreens production on our farm and probably, I mean, that's like when I'm talking to a microgreens producer and I say, we did a little bit of microgreens production. It's probably like some, <laughs> it's probably like me saying I do a little bit of farming now when I've got my, my 500 square foot <laughs> garden. Right. But, um, yeah. you know, we always had the discussion of, do I fill this tray full or do I, am I, am I filling it half full? Are you, where, where are you guys at with that? It all depends on the variety. That's pretty much, and you know, we're constantly tweaking everything we do. I mean, we have notebooks and notebooks for each variety that we do, that we've done over the years. Because, you know, you have to take into effect everything, temperature, humidity, um, sunlight. Uh, so it, it all depends, you know. It all depends on the variety. So sometimes we're filling it half, sometimes we're filling it a quarter of, you know, sometimes we're filling it three quarters. Sometimes we're filling it all the way to the top. It just, it all depends. And I assume that, that it depends on how big the seeds are and, and how long things are going to be in that tray and, and needing the nutrients from the tray. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, in wintertime, some of the, our varieties are, it takes, you know, 32 days. So we'll use a little bit more soil. Others take eight days so we use a little bit less soil and sometimes you know it's just you know they're all <laughs> they're they're all so different and so they're like children you know <laughs> one one likes drinking water another one only likes water sometimes you know sometimes they like being in full sun other times they like being in the shade you know i think a lot of people that i talk to youth growers that are coming in and they'll, they'll ask me they'll email me ask me questions and they get so frustrated sometimes with me because I'm, you know, I'm like, well, it's different. It depends on the time of the year. It depends on this. And they're just like, can you just tell me the exact? And I'm like, listen, this isn't Coca-Cola where you flip a switch and it all comes out exactly the same. I mean, this is, you know, there's, it's, you know, in the south uh, east corner of the greenhouse, it's a little bit warmer than in the northeast side. Like, it's just like. It, it, it's 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 just so many variables you know everybody even you know even farmers that, that want to do the you know add microgreen to their farm it's just like they just think oh it's just you know it's systematic it's just gonna happen and it's just not there's so many different variables and it's just and it's constantly constantly changing and that's what i tell everybody too it's like if you're starting out you know, if you're starting with one variety, do 10 different ways of growing it and document each one and put it in different areas of the greenhouse or whatever you're growing. Um, because it's, you're constantly having to 
change anything. And it happens every year with me. I'm like, uh, spring into summer. I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I put the shade cloth up? And, you know, we burn half of a row of something because I didn't put the shade cloth up at 7 a.m. And, and I, I thought, oh, I could just wait till 11 a.m. It's a dance. It's a dance. To come back to what we were talking about before the break with the HACCP planning and, and kind of documentation, like how do you communicate to your staff something like today we're going to fill the flats half full for this crop and three eighths full for that crop and all the way full for this crop? And that's maybe different than what we were doing last week for exactly the same crops. How are you getting that information across to people? Well, that's the beauty of the HACCP of making those documents because it's hanging on the wall. You know, we have boards everywhere. We have, uh, you know, clipboards hanging. So, you know, first you have to, you know, the first time you're doing implementing something, of course, you have to spend some time that everybody gets on the same page. But that's the beauty of, of, of having this, these documents. And that's what I was saying. Instead of, you know, one of the guys going out and being in the greenhouse and going, oh, do I put this here or do I put uh, let me go find Brendan. And, you know, who knows where Brendan's going to be. So then they take however long it is to find me and then ask me that question. And meanwhile, all I have to do is, you know, look up or to the right or left or, or walk up a little bit and, and get the clipboard and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's where I put it. So that's where the efficiency comes in. And it's just, you know, it's, and it's empowering, uh, you know, the workers too, where they're making the decisions. I mean, yes, there was somebody who made a decision like myself uh, before that, but you know, it, I see it. I see it with a lot of my guys who are that come in that have worked for me. And they're a little shy or hesitant, and they don't know if they're doing it the right way. And and so having that there, it's like it, it builds confidence with them too, because they know. And then when when a new employee comes in, those guys can be like, "Hey, just you, know, you don't have to come find me. Just go look at the clipboards right there." Oh, okay. And then. It actually, I think, like I said, it creates more efficiency. Yeah, and it helps people to feel, I mean, you said empowered, but I also think just just confident and capable because they have the tools that they need to do the job. They have the information and it's right there. And instead of always feeling like they don't know, they actually get to feel like they know, even if it's not in their brain, it's immediately available to them. Uh, exactly. And, when, you know, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, when, when I have, new employees come in and, you know, they're like, well, I, I don't really have any experience work growing or, you know, in agriculture. I didn't go to school for it. I'm like, me either. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm like, you have a good heart? And they're like, huh? I'm like, you have a good heart. You believe you you have a good heart. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, there you go. That's all you need. Welcome aboard. You know, I, I don't have any training in any of this. I mean, you know, any schooling. I never went to any school. I never worked for a master at the craft. I just had a feeling, and that's pretty much it. So then you got the flats full, and now it's time to, to put the seeds in. I, I'm going to guess, because you said you're, you're hand-filling the flats, are you just sowing by hand as well? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have, we, we, we have different tools of measuring the different seeds. But again, there's variables, different times of the year, different temperatures. I mean. This spring on the East Coast, it was cold. And then this past September that we had was extremely warm. It was like, it was like June. 
I mean, it was not June. It was like July temperatures. It was like 85, 90 degrees. So I always tell everybody, going back to what I said, you have a good heart. It's all about feeling. Like, okay, yes, there is. A, you have to scoop two tablespoons, let's say, for something. But know your surroundings. What's it like today? But then also, what's it going to be like seven days from now? Um, so I'm always, saying, you know, I'm always telling everybody, just trust your feelings. You know, trust. What are you, what are you, what are you feeling right now? And so, you know, that's that's pretty much how we're doing it right now. Again, we're going to start bringing in different technologies to kind of help speeding up production because of the demand that we have. So I never want to lose that that hands-on approach. And it doesn't mean you have, you know, your hands touching everything. Meaning just there's a care, there's a there's a, an awareness of what's 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 happening in the process. And how do you make sure when you're broadcasting by hand that you get an even distribution? Oh uh, man, that's, <laughs> it just takes it just it takes time, you know. Just takes it's a, it, it, it's almost like a it's like a, a, a chef learning how to stop, you know, using that tool, using the knife. When you're first starting out, you're like, okay, you're not chopping slowly. But after you've done it for months, you've probably been with a professional chef, and you're like, holy cow, look at the right, <laughs> yeah, it. it's un- it's a craft. You're creating, you know, it's like wow. So it's kind of that kind of the same thing. It's, it just takes time, you know. Not not everybody that I'm hiring is feeding. I have my, I, I really have my my people that are right, they're feeders. They're not anything other than that. That's what they're amazing at. And you know, this person over here, let's find a different area for them to con- to to concentrate on. So it's a, it's a, it's just like you know, it, it's an art form. And that's kind of how I look at it. Then of course you're putting. You take the flat, then it's seated. You're putting it on on benches. What kind of benches do you have? What are what are you using for that? They're the flood tables. So the watering is from the bottom up. Okay, and that I assume is a disease control issue, right? I mean, we we talked earlier about sprouts and and well, not necessarily a food safety issue, but just a, a disease in the plants issue that you don't want to be creating a moist canopy or a moist under canopy and watering from the bottom, make sure that those, those leaves stay dry and you never end up with the opportunity for bacteria to multiply or, or, or fungi to germinate on those leaf surfaces. Absolutely. Yes. Are you cutting those crops and placing them directly into the clamshells or are they getting, are they getting bulked into a container? Are you, are you harvesting and then dropping them into a container and then clamshelling them later? What's your process for that harvest and, and post-harvest handling? Well, this is where uh, HACCP comes back in. Um, so we we are cutting and directly placing into the package. And people are like, you don't wash them? And we don't. Because, as our HACCP agent said, water is where disease and contamination happens. It's the, it's the number one carrier of contamination and disease is water. So if you eliminate that, um, and then, you know, you have to state on the, on the label, uh, you know, not washed. So then it's up to the consumer to, you know, if they feel they may need to wash it, then they do. Well, and of course, not washing also means that if you do have contamination on one portion of your greens, you're not going to spread it to every other green that goes into that water. Because that's the other challenge, I think, with, with water is that it's not just a potential source of contamination. It can spread it over everything that goes into the water. 
Yeah, thank you for for saying it. Yeah, that that's pretty much why you know we in, in doing our hats up, the agent was like, no, no, you don't have to, you do not have to wash because of what you just said. Yeah, and you see it too. I mean, even in 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 a in a, in a flat, you know, there, there's a quarter of it that is unusable, and you can just see you're like, but on the other end, it's completely fine. So that happens. You know, you just cut around the the uh, bad areas. I assumed then once you harvest stuff's going straight into a walk-in cooler. Correct. Yeah. And then what the room that we cut in is, is cold. It's an air conditioned room. Oh, really? What, like what temperature? when you say cold, is it, is it cold like 38 degrees cold or cold like 55 degrees cold? Like 55 degrees cold. I wish it could be 38, but my, uh, my cutters would not be happy. <laughs> I tried that on my farm and we, you know, um, <laughs> I actually remember one farmer I worked for talked about, we should pack the CSA boxes in the walk-in cooler. And pretty much everybody was like, no, not going to happen. Um, so how are you getting those flats from the greenhouse to that cool room? And how do you protect them from contamination in that process? So basically just on uh, nursery carts, you know, when we, when we came onto the new property in Bridgehampton, we built everything based on the way that we were doing it before and now i'm realizing oh man we're, we're we're here we go we're not being efficient we're we're carting from the from the greenhouse into the cut room you know here what's going forward we should just have the cut room right next to the greenhouse not you know 20 yards away so the so basically we're just putting it on nursery cards and covering it and bringing it into into the cutting room. You're eliminating a lot of contamination when you have these these things in place for you know hash apps. You're eliminating a lot of a lot of that contamination, you know? Because you have a system in place. Maybe we should have said earlier what HACCP actually stands for. It's hazard analysis for critical control points. And so basically you're looking at where are all of the potential places for contamination to happen and what are we going to do about it? Exactly. And you know, here's, you know, here's, you know, again, going back from hydroponics to growing in soil, there's so much more critical points in hydroponics than there is in growing soil. So our HACCP agent drove all the way from western Pennsylvania to our farm, which took, you know, like six hours. And we were planned to have him be here for, for like, you know, Monday through Friday. And when he got here and we were going through the process, you know, the first day was, you know, we're all getting our bearings. By the second day, he's like, I think I'll be out of here two days earlier. And um, we're like, wow, okay. And he's like, because you don't really, you know, you don't really have a lot of critical points in the system, you know. And so that was great to hear because, you know, we saved a little bit of money. <laughs> Not having him here for, for uh, you know, five nights. Where do you go to get your seeds? What What are you looking for? when you're sourcing seeds for microgreens? Well, I'm always looking for to go direct to the farmer who's growing the seeds, but unfortunately, that's not the way the system is in place where there's middlemen. So um, I want to work with companies like Johnny's, High Mowing, and I'm looking at the seed. I'm, I'm looking for a high germination rate. That's what I'm looking for, for for everything. High germination rate, of course, certified organic. And I always ask the agents that I'm working with, I'm always like, well, tell me about, you know, the farmer. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, 
well, I'm not asking, you know, you're not going to give me his email address or his phone number, but tell me, what's he like? Nice guy? Nice woman? And they're kind of like, yeah, he's a family man. He's a ruler. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I just want to know where it's coming from. Like, who's growing my seed? That's important. Like, the consumer wanting to know who's growing their food. I like that. Well, and I, and again, if if you have that belief that that the attitude that you carry or who you are carries over into the food that you're growing, that would be especially important for a microgreen score because you're just not that far from the seed. Exactly. Exactly. With that, we're going to take another short break here, get a word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back with our lightning round. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've had the good fortune to work with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors, kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. BCS America. Dot com. Brendan, what's your favorite tool on the microgreens farm? My favorite tool is uh, this, uh, I call it a stamper. I made it out of a piece of uh, white birch and uh, a clothes hanging rod, wooden rod. Basically, it's just I cut it so it could fit inside the 10 by 20 flat, and I just uh, stamped down the soil to make an even plane work with uh, I mean we just I kind of you know I kind of made it I still have it it's still work it's still being used it's those little things that that add up yeah right? yeah you must be a pretty busy guy with the farm what was your last purely recreational activity I sir we just had um we just had uh, hurricane Maria it came up the coast and created an amazing swell for us and Irma we had about 27 days of surf up here on, on the East End. So that, that was my recreational, my last recreational activity. Does the surfing ever get in the way of the farming? Absolutely. The only times when I, I get the text message, it's going off, get here now. <laughs> I'm like right in the middle of like a huge production day. I'm like, great. And then, you know, I'm only you know, a 10-minute drive to the ocean. So, And out of all the microgreens that you grow, what's your favorite crop to grow? I guess my favorite crop right now is Thai basil. I don't know, because it's, it's usually what I'm eating. And right now I'm on the Thai basil kick. So I guess Thai basil is my, my favorite at the moment. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Stay the course. No. Never deviate from your vision. You know, once you have that vision, just keep going back to that vision. Brendan, thank you so much for being part of the farmer to farmer podcast today. Uh, thank you, Chris. That was, that was great. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 
141 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Davison. That's D-A-V-I-S-O-N. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, leave us a review. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Mm-hmm.